If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Peter's first letter. It's right after James, which is after Hebrews. First and second Peter, we're going to be in the first chapter of Peter's first letter for the next few minutes. As we uh, go to God's word, let's turn to him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we just sang, your word is so clear and true. And because of that, Father, would you renew our minds to trust in you and give to us the bread of life that we may know the risen Christ. Indeed, Father, would you open the, your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word that we would know the risen Christ, and live no longer for ourselves, but for Him. For we pray in His name. Amen. We have spent about a year and a half um, in Mark's Gospel, where we've been seeing Mark as not the larger catechism, not the shorter catechism, but the shortest catechism. And kids, what are those three questions that we've been looking at from Mark's Gospel? Help me out. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? Now, as I mentioned a number of times and continue to mention, there is widespread confusion and ignorance as to the identity of Jesus Christ. Well, if there is widespread confusion and ignorance when it comes to the identity of Jesus Christ, then there's going to be a similar ignorance and confusion when it comes to the identity of Christians. Who are they? Now, if someone responds to the person and work of Jesus in repentance and faith, then the question needs to be asked, well, who then is he? Who then is she? But really the most important form of that question is this. In light of who Jesus is, in light of who, what Jesus has done, and in light of my response, who am I? Who am I? Here we're facing the question of identity. Now today, in 2017, the question of identity consumes many people. I mean, if you turn to politics, there's identity politics. If you, if you look at even the sexual revolution that continues to overtake us, people are trying to figure out who are they. They're, they're not male or female. Who are they? But our culture, our society around us says this, be whoever you want to be. No restrictions, no limits. Not just the Bible says God created man, male and female, not just natural law says there's a man and there's a woman, but be whoever you want to be, our culture says. Well, when we last left off in Mark last week, you may remember Peter's boast. And all the others said the same. No way. We will not deny. 
Well, who was Peter? Who would Peter say that he was? Of course, Peter could say he's the man who confessed Christ. He also could say he's the man that rebuked Christ and himself was rebuked. He was also the man who denied Christ. Now, as we will see probably next week, next Sunday, when Peter, the spokesman, denied Christ and recognized that, he no longer spoke. Rather, he broke down and wept. It was the end of his hope for Peter, but hope was reborn when Peter saw Jesus alive again. Because the resurrection of Jesus was a life-changing reality for Peter. He was restored by the risen Christ. For those of you familiar, as we've been going through Mark's Gospel, most of the time Peter spoke. But at the time of the transfiguration, when the glory, the heavenly divine glory of Jesus made itself known on earth for a, for a time, Peter didn't know what to say. However, after the resurrected Christ sent His Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Peter knew exactly what to say as he preached the gospel of the, resurrect, of the crucified and resurrected Christ. And now, most likely from Rome, as he writes his first letter in the early to mid-60s, some 30 years after the events of Jesus' death and resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, Peter knows exactly what to write. And here Peter is writing a letter to believers, to Christians, former pagans in alien territory who have been grieved by various trials and who are facing a fiery, painful trial. Primarily it's persecution for faith, but also in general, life in a sinful and fallen world where things don't work yet the way they are supposed to work. Now what do you write to people suffering in trials? Notice Peter is not going to write a letter of sympathy, but rather a note teaching them about the power and promises of the gospel. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000, it said he had compassion on them, and so he taught them. Peter has compassion on these new Christians, and he's teaching them. He encourages them by directing their attention to the eternal promises of God the Father, to the past completed work and the future promised return of Jesus Christ, as well as the present work of the Holy Spirit. Peter meets their needs by reminding them of the gospel and reassuring them of their salvation. He reminds them of who they are. Peter is not going to tell these people, be whoever you want to be. He's going to remind them of who they are. That is their new identity in Christ. Look at the first few verses in chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace 
be multiplied to you. For those of you who thought grace and peace was a trademark of Paul, Peter's got it as well. What a great way to begin a letter. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Join with me now as I continue reading through verse 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Our text, verses 3 through 9, is a doxology, a hymn of praise to God. And in the original language, it's one long sentence. Christians, Peter is saying, are people who have a new identity. Who are you? Who are you? Well, first of all, you are new. A Christian is someone who has been given a new life. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. A Christian is someone who is born again, given a new life. Notice it's passive. You are given a new life. It is not active. You don't obtain a new life. You don't make yourself get a new life. You are given a new life. Whether it's physical life or spiritual life, you are born. You are born. You receive. You do not achieve. By God, you are given a new life. You are born again by God. He caused us to be born again according to His great mercy. Remember when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again in John 3, 7. My friends, that is not a command. As if hearing those words from Jesus, we go out and try to be born again. No, it is just a statement of reality. The only way to see the kingdom of God, the only way to enter the kingdom of God is to be born again. Now this Born again it is not, sometimes people confuse that and they think you're just given a second chance to save yourself. You know, you blew it, God saved you, and then your first words out of your mouth is, hey, I'm going to do it right this time. No, being born again is not a second, is not another opportunity to save yourself. It's a new life, and this new life is a radical change There is a new status 
You are justified. A new relationship. You are adopted. And a new destiny. You will be glorified. And what is the cause of this new life? Look at it and underline it in your Bibles. I used to not underline things, but now I do. You don't have to underline it, but underline it figuratively. How's that if you want to? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How do you get this new life? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the instrument by which God gives us new life. And what are we um, uh, born again and given? To a living hope, not wishful thinking, but a firm conviction, an eager, confident expectation. It's a hope that's anchored in the past. Jesus rose. It's working in the present. Jesus lives. And it will be completed in the future. Jesus is coming. As a living hope, it grows and increases in strength. So let me ask you all this question. Is your hope living right now? Is your hope on life support? Now at times, the various trials and struggles and difficulties, absolutely our hope is at times on life support. But my friends, that's one of the reasons why you're not saved and left on an island. You're saved and brought into the church. How, how wonderful it is to fan the flames of everyone's living hope. Not only are you given this new life, this living hope, but notice it's an everlasting inheritance. You don't achieve an inheritance, rather you receive an inheritance. And kids, when do you get the inheritance? When someone dies. And that is what has happened through Jesus' death. And because of its great value, because this inheritance is everlasting, look at the terms Peter uses to describe it. And it's reality, just like the peace that passes understanding that Paul speaks of. This is an everlasting inheritance that surpasses understanding. And Peter's got to use what we call negative theology. It's the way to describe God as what he is not. Here, we are describing this glorious, everlasting inheritance, not by what it is, but by, as it were, what it's not. It's, it's, not, it's imperishable. It's imperishable. It cannot die, be lost, stolen, ruined. It cannot decay or wear out. It is undefiled. It is not defiled. It's pure and pristine. It's not spoiled or corrupted. It's unpolluted by sin. This is speaking of that day that we're going to one day enter when the battle for, with sin is done with. It's undefiled and it's unfading. It's not fading. It will never diminish vitality or value. It will never wither, grow dim, or lose beauty. I saw a TV ad the other day for Mako. I hadn't seen a Mako ad in a long time. And for like 275 bucks, you could get your car repainted because the paint fades, right? Not the everlasting inheritance. 
It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now this new life, this living hope, and this everlasting inheritance is incredibly valuable. And so our new life is being guarded. Not only are you new, not only do you have a new life, but your new life is being guarded. You and I are being guarded. And we see here two distinct but inseparable elements that are involved. How? How are we being guarded? Look at the text. By God's power. The basis for our protection. Guarded by God's power. Think about Paul. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And how? Through our faith. Faith again, the instrument. God gives us faith, but who does the believing? We do. We are shielded by God's power through faith. We are kept under guard. We are in protective custody. And what purpose are we guarded? Why are we guarded? For the consummation, the completion of our salvation. Look at the end of verses 5 and 7 and 9. It's speaking of that day to come, the consummation of our salvation. Because now we have salvation in principle. But one day there will be salvation in fullness. And Peter wants us to see that God's power sustains our faith. My friends, do any of you all have days, if not weeks or months, where faith is weak? But weak faith is being guarded by God's power. Strong faith is being guarded by God's power. Now it's a good thing that Peter tells us that we first of all have a guarded life. Because he goes on to tell us that our new life is and will be a tested life. So not only... With this new life, are you being guarded, but you are also being tested? Look at verses 6 and 7. Grieved by various trials. Grieved by various trials. Uh, some of us have been uh, watching a DVD uh, series called Changing Hearts, Changing Lives. And in our last lesson, um, the instructor went told us when, whenever you see words like various, it, it's scripture saying, fill in the blank. As you're reading it, what trials am I facing right now? Fill in the blank. Because the Christian life is full of trouble and trials and testing. And my friends, anyone who tells you something different is lying. Jesus said, in me you will have peace, but in this world you will have peace trouble. And our Father, Peter is wanting us to see, employs the furnace of affliction not to ruin us, but rather to refine the faith of His people. Because it's through trials that the genuine character of faith emerges and is enhanced. Because the genuineness of your faith is and will be tested by fire. Because think about it, fire reveals the substance of our faith. It's a stress test, as it were, to see if faith is genuine. I know that um, some of you have gone, undergone stress tests, right? 
where, where uh, you're hooked up to a treadmill, you're on a treadmill and you've got various monitors and they're wanting to see the condition of your heart under stress. Banks, as a result of the 2008 financial crisis, have to go through what's called a stress test to see if they've got enough capital or enough equity, some kind of financial term, to, to withstand it. It's a stress test. And my friends, grace and peace, from her earliest days in public worship in October of 2008, has undergone a stress test that has been intense at times, but God has shown Himself faithful. The dross has been burnt off and what is genuine and true and pure has come to the surface. Gold is tested by fire. Fire does not destroy gold. It only removes the impurities. But even then, gold will one day vanish. But faith, faith is infinitely more precious and enduring, so it is tested. Think about the motive for a goldsmith. He doesn't put the gold in the fire to destroy the gold, he puts it to refine the gold. Our Father is a master goldsmith. Because our trials keep us trusting, Peter wants us to know. They burn away self-confidence and they drive us to our Savior. Think about the trials that Peter himself went through. His self-confidence was burned away. He was driven to his Savior. Where is your faith being tested right now? What's the trial right now where your faith, as it were, is on the line? Rejoice that you are not alone, that you have been brought into a church where we can come alongside one another, hold hands, as it were, at times, lock the shields of faith together, and follow Jesus. Notice for a little while, for a little while, turn with me to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, here's what Paul says in verses 13 through 18, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. He continues, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul, in other words, is saying the same thing as Peter. A slight momentary affliction, but an eternal weight of glory. Faith is exercised through trials. But what's the end result of the test? When the test is over, what's the result? Look at me in verse 7. 
praise and glory and honor to God and encouragement to us. You often hear one of us say, God's glory and our good. My friends, they are related and inseparable because whatever is for God's glory is also for His people's good. And here, Peter lays side by side the security of believers in Christ absolutely secure and their suffering in the world. Jesus says, in me you will have peace. In the world you will have trouble. And yet, this new life, this one that is being guarded as well as being tested, is also a joyful life. Because Peter finally wants his reader, he wants us to see that not only are you new, not only are you um, being guarded, not only are you being tested, but you are joyful. We see that at the beginning of verse 6 and in verses 8 and 9. How do we rejoice? In what do we rejoice? We don't rejoice in the trials themselves, in the afflictions themselves, but we rejoice in the sovereign God who is orchestrating all of this for His glory and our good. And notice, it's rejoicing with joy. We can certainly rejoice in a lot of other things and for a lot of other purposes, but here he says, you believe in Him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It's inexpressible. You can't put it into words. We are left speechless. Because this joy is a joy that comes by faith and not by sight. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas, doubting Thomas after the resurrection. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Because joy is a natural response, a necessary consequence to the reality of God's saving work. Have any of you all found yourself ever with tears coming flowing down your cheeks at something extremely difficult and sad and yet had an overwhelming sense of joy at the same time. I've been at the, at the bedside of my grandfather and my father and my mother when they made the jump from life on earth to life in heaven. And oh yes, there was great sadness and grief, but it was not grief without hope. There was great joy knowing that they were no longer struggling, but in the very presence of the Lord. A Christian can be grieving and joyful at the same time. Notice he refers to the outcome of our faith. What are we obtaining? The salvation of our souls. As we exercise our faith, testing trials and trouble do not lead to a life that's full of morbid introspection, a permanent woe-is-me attitude, a self-pity-filled life. Rather, they lead upward and outward to joy. Well, let's go back as we wrap up to the question. In view of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
Who am I? Those that have repented and are trusting in Jesus alone for salvation, you have a new life. It's been given to you by God. His mercy, His great mercy is His motive. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is His means. And our resurrection is inseparably connected to His resurrection. Peter starts off his letter by praising God because he's given believers, believers that are undergoing various trials, new life. And he's guaranteed their future glory. What awaits us is suffering through trials, testing, and difficulties. But also what awaits us is glory. Notice he says, for a little while. That's this earthly life, my friends. A little while. You know, have you ever been in a bad situation and thought it will never end? Have you guys ever been in such a mess that you say it's never going to end? Guess what? For a little while, it will end. Recently, I saw the bumper sticker. Life is tough, and then you die. That's a very popular view, isn't it? But you know what? It's also a biblical view. Read Genesis 3. Read Hebrews 9. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that to face judgment. But as Peter reminds them, and God now reminds us this is not the bumper sticker that captures the reality of life for a Christian. Turn with me to John 11. John 11, I'll read verses 23 through 27. Remember, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And in verse 23... Jesus says this, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And so, the bumper sticker for Christians, based on this text that we just heard, for those who believe, this bumper sticker is a little bit longer. Life is tough, and then you die, yet shall you live. Jesus' resurrection from the dead changes everything, including and especially your very identity. Your life now as a Christian is new, is being guarded, is being tested, and is full of joy that recognizes that the reality that there is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything who you are from the moment you believe 
all the way until eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who in our place and on our behalf took our curse so that we could get the blessing that he alone deserved for that perfect life of obedience that he led before you. Oh, Father, we thank you that the grave was not powerful enough to hold Jesus. But indeed, he was put to death for our trespasses, but raised for our justification. And we join with the Apostle Paul saying, we have been crucified by, with Christ and we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. And the life that we live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And we thank you, Father, for his resurrection. It's, it's the assurance of victory now and victory forever. Father, help us to realize that who we are in Christ as a result of his resurrection is glorious news. We thank you, Father, that we don't on our own become whatever we want to be, but through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and our trust in him, we become your beloved children. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.